Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 138 with my friend, Chris Lixie. I, well, you'll find out. I was about to tell you how I got to know Chris, but you find out that in the beginning. That's the format of the show. Uh, trigger warning, Chris does talk about suicide at one point. So if that is something that makes you icky or unpleasant, um, you know, be warned. Other than that, uh, he's got an amazing story, and I'm so glad that we were able to sit down because we tried to get this scheduled before, and I, I don't think we would have had near the type of content that we got if we would have done this previously. So I'm very excited to give to you my friend, Chris. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? Anyway, uh, lots of tangents for warning. It Especially happens. with you, I know our history with uh, <laughs> 80s and 90s pop culture, so I'm sure that'll come up at some point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, our interests have crossed over several times uh -huh, over the years. Uh -huh. So I usually start this out with how I know people. And yeah. I, I just, I know you originally from Blackthorn, right? Yeah. I would play shows at Blackthorn Pub up in Holly, Michigan, for yep. those not from the area. Indeed. Um, and you were a cook there? Uh, I was I a server. server there. I was a server there. Um, um, my cousin Megan was also a server there. She yeah. got me roped into it. Her, I didn't know her, Megan was your cousin. Yep. Love Megan. Uh, <laughs> she's a wonderful human being. Um, probably one of the best I know. But she started working there. I got the job there, and I was living in Warren at the time yep. and moved up there to take this new opportunity, like a, a fun craft beer bar with a beer, a, a menu that was just not seen Almost anywhere right at the time. Yeah. And I was a craft beer nerd at the time. Just, you know, ADHD brain. Um, I found a hobby uh -huh. and I I it devoured it entirely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So familiar. <laughs> so our uh, mutual friend had opened the place and uh, offered me a position up there. So I just uprooted myself 45 miles and slummed it in Holly. And, and that's where we, we met. Yeah. And uh, so I met you working up there and then uh you've come over for a couple of podcast recordings uh a lifetime ago <laughs> yeah which is crazy thing about because like the pandemic puts time in such a weird space like in the, like the last 10 years is actually feels like the last five years mm -hmm. um because that was like f six years ago maybe longer um the beers in 90s yeah yeah um which is just crazy uh but so, yeah, you joined me for a couple podcast records mm -hmm. when you had gone to uh, uh, Dragon Mead Brewery. Yep. And I was doing my thing there. And yeah, then pandemic and, and job changes and alcohol. And, <laughs> and here is, we are. The so. cessation of alcohol. <laughs> and here uh -huh. we are. And it's it's funny. Um, like our paths have kind of mirrored each other in a couple of ways, you know, yeah. a certain different acts of the same like story i suppose i don't know it's weird to say but like hey you're getting sober i'm getting sober a lot of people are getting sober now let's talk people, about that a lot of people should get sober um, a lot of people should get sober <laughs> so let's let's go back in time to the many things i don't know um born and raised here michigan uh michigan yeah okay uh warren born in royal oak uh the hospital raised in warren and madison heights mostly bummer on oakland county uh mom's side of the family is 
from here, Troy, Holly area, dad's side of the family is not really in the picture that much. Um, but we're all seriously from Michigan. Okay. Um, the dad's side of the family goes back to the Bay City, Tawas area, all the way back to like French Canadian fur right. trading occupation. Nice. So way back. I got, I got some deep roots here. All right. Um, okay. Before other white people came with their constitution and <laughs> damn, <laughs> damn Brits and Americans. Um, so siblings, uh, only surviving sibling. Um, sounds like, I mean, it's kind of a sad story. Um, I had a younger brother that was one year younger than me, uh, died in infancy. Okay. Uh, they called it SIDS, but it was 1988 and, you know, four month old babies don't just die, but it just, it happened. And, uh, it it definitely sculpted a lot of my life because there was a, a point where my mother and I were just kind of flying solo. She was single mom, and there was always that knowledge that my little brother Casey was there but isn't there. And it, How much younger was he? Um, 11 months. Okay. Oh, so close. So, yeah, yeah. very close. Um, so, But you don't have memory of that no. happening. Okay. No, but that was... Not really a theme, but it, it kept popping up, and it was definitely an obstacle for both her and I, yeah. especially her. You know, I was... can I just like <laughs> this is very strange because uh, I'm trying to think, and I, I this is my hundred and thirty something interview, but uh, I don't think other than the last one that people will hear next week and this one <laughs> that people have had a sibling that passed shortly after birth hmm. and somehow the two that I have that are back to back and it's just crazy to me i was like i just talked about this Those are new experiences that's, and here's another one yeah that's just wild so yeah i imagine and you you're that was the only sibling you had mm -hmm. okay so you grew up like kind of an only child but also with this kind of okay. um because that that tragedy that super super dark thing you know yeah that happened early in my life while it did shape a lot of like loneliness and independence, you know, in me as a child, it also strengthened the relationship I have with my cousins because we have a pretty close family and I grew up with them. Okay. And for a long time I was the youngest and there was like a nine year gap, an eight year gap. And then a couple more boys were born. So I found myself smack dab in the middle and everything was peachy keen. You know, I had these siblings that I could, hang out with and pester and they could pester me and we could both go home to our respective homes and yeah. leave each other alone for a while. So you said dad's not in the picture. What does that look like when um, you're a kid? Like when do your parents split up? So the divorce was relatively amicable for me. Um, they both made efforts. They were to kind of keep me out of it as much as possible. How and old were you? I was about four... Uh -huh to five when things started falling apart and about seven i think when the hammer finally dropped and things split it's a long three years it's a pretty <laughs> long three years um that was kind of a blur i mean early childhood yeah and to be honest like divorce is traumatic yeah you know so yeah. it, like it's one of the 10 a scores oh yeah <laughs> um and you know how like childhood traumas go like for 15 minutes you're eight years old you remember something when you're 10 and then all of a sudden you're 13 and really confused about everything and and then you're drunk in a bar. <laughs> there's like, some steps in yeah. there. Yeah, there's like. there's all those little traumas in there. Well, and then that happened, and then that. Happened. Um, but yeah, um, so it was early uh, okay. that they split, and it's 
I, I don't want to say like, because there's such this stigma, you don't want to say dad's not in the picture. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he is, we've reconnected. We've kind of like split apart several times over the years yeah. for different reasons. Both him, both me, nobody's really to blame. It's just kind of happened. Yeah. Um, Relatable. <laughs> right. Um, one of the many demons of Facebook um, <laughs> is that it does connect people in a really laissez-faire kind of attitude. Like, you can always keep tabs on someone. Yeah. So I feel like he and I are both doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome welcome to this podcast. Yeah. We, yeah, we, had, <laughs> <tries> to... <laughs> we had dinner a couple of years ago or just last year or something like that, somewhat recently. And it was really nice. Um, got to see my stepmom. She's wonderful. Um, what, was that, what did that look like when you were a kid, though? Did you – was there split custody or – There was split custody, typical um, – Every other Wednesday or every Wednesday, every other weekends, kind of thing. Okay, and what? And so you he stayed local, then I'm guessing he stayed near Shelby Township, um, and I stayed with Mom and Warren. Okay, um, Mom eventually remarried when I was ten in '97, um, and I got a wonderful stepfather out of that. That's nice. Absolutely wonderful guy. So that made that part of the divorce and that childhood much easier to wrap up yeah you know we had a family yeah and then i had i still had my father still had my grandpa still had everything else and then things were getting more normalized more nuclear back at home so i got really lucky and it was uh, a lot it had a lot to do with the work that you know my whole family put in you know yeah. to get it there I'm, I'm sitting here doling out the feel goods, you know, you got into recovery and you start looking back at everything. You're like, well, I really need to make up for some, you know, yeah. some stuff. And yeah. um, you start realizing, well, I kind of had a dick for a while. <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah. Um, I, I was just talking about this with somebody where it's just, there are things that we do throughout our lives, not just as kids, but definitely as kids in a, in a version that we're, we're much more unaware where we're doing things, uh, whether it's behaviors or um, how we treat people or whatever that looks like in an effort to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. And some of the, I mean, some of those things are shitty and toxic and terrible, but uh, they're also like keeping us alive. And then, but the problem is, so that's learned behavior. And then when you don't need those protective methods anymore and you're still practicing that same learned behavior, that's when you have to start taking accountability and being like, well, hold on. <laughs> Um, reel that back for us. Yeah. But when you, when you are talking about, uh, and I don't want to dwell anywhere. You don't want to dwell, but your mom gets remarried or you're about to hit like junior high. I mean, what's life like for you? How, how is home life, school, social life? It's pretty peachy keen, you know, a uh, pretty average Midwest kind of kid going through, you know, a divorce and mom remarried. Uh, I was playing video games and riding, BMX bikes and doing things that boys do and getting scraped up and uh, this it, it's kind of how it was and I was also at this time which adds another element of uh, fun in my story uh, fun I say loosely I was figuring out that I was gay right around this time like after the wedding and we moved into a new home in Warren and oh it's it's that's gonna be what we're gonna deal with for the next 20 30 years that's gonna be cool 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 Cool, 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 cool. Just when things are starting to look up, we're going to throw a wrench in it. So that was interesting. What does that look like? Can you, like, 
do you have specific memories where you're like, wait, is it like where something you're feeling or thinking isn't fitting into whatever this box of normal might look like or something? I hate to sound cliche or bring something up, but it's said so often it, it kind of makes sense. I always kind of thought something was different. And I think my grandma hit the nail on the head. I, both her and my mother figured it out way before I did. <laughs> my mom would like leave this breadcrumb of like supportive hints, like, you know, whatever you end up doing or being or whoever you end up being with, you know, we love you, you know that? I'm like, does she know? <laughs> she knows. Um, but my grandmother, her mother, my grand grandmother taught me how to crochet and uh, knit and certain crafts that, you know, seven, eight-year-old boys aren't really into or doing. You clearly weren't in the Boy Scouts. Well, I, I, I was. Uh, we were doing knot tying and all cool stuff in Boy Scouts, and that stuff's cool. But I, I saw that crocheting stuff, yeah. not like a feminine side of things or um, like feminine activities or making dresses. I was fascinated by the fact that you could take spools of yarn yeah. and make shit. Yeah. Like, that was cool to me. The process of it was neat to me. So I latched onto this, and I started doing it on the bus to school at seven, eight years old, crocheting away. How did that go over? <laughs> well, you got you know, Josh over here uh, playing with Pogs, and Chris is sitting right next to him crocheting something. It wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for some reason, I didn't understand why people just didn't understand it. Yeah. So I went ahead and did my thing, and uh, they... Just realized, well, I didn't really give a fuck about, you know, what people thought. But it, later on, you know, some of these things started coming into place. Like, I'm different and I kind of don't care. Until you're in middle school and you start caring. You know, you start wanting people to like you for some reason. Yeah. And, and everyone's a dick. <laughs> and everyone's a dick. Like, biologically, physiologically evil. Yeah. Yeah. Through no fault of their own. But... You're just evil, so you you have this identity crisis. Like I don't really fit into everything, and then your hormones are telling you that you actually don't fit in to anything yeah. that's around you, because everybody else that might be feeling that is so deep down in the closet. This is 1998, 97, 99. Yeah. It was a different world. Yeah, absolutely. Not as bad as the 50s and 60s. Yeah, but still um, in certain aspects, but still. Yeah. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was getting airtime on MSNBC. You know? Well, and I, I mean, the common terminology, like you can watch old 90s teen movies I, I, and you hear queer, you hear fag, you hear like you hear it constantly. It's just uh, just like saying stupid. That's so gay. <laughs> yeah. That's so oh, gay. God, yeah. Plenty of that. Oh. That, like... I, mean, that, I mean, that still happens to... Uh, it, it does. Yeah. And that's where I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole of like. No, that might when, come When later. is it okay and funny? And like, if this person, you know, like all I can think about right now, because I'm looking at Chang's shirt is like <laughs> Chang does that in community a couple times. Yeah. Uh, Gay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a, I don't a, know anyone offended by that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I want to put a little personal disclaimer out there about me, Christopher Lixie. <laughs> I use it to my advantage. Good for you. <laughs> um, I don't wear my homosexuality, my pride on my sleeve, but I don't hide from it. Yeah. It's it's kind of my hardware. It's my firmware. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's nothing I can change or control, so I use it to my advantage. And a couple of very 
well-timed gay jokes really gets the social lubricants going when you don't have alcohol anymore. But it's Amen. it's really but like we were saying like late 90s early 2000s yeah. homophobia was kind of, you know, in the wheelhouse of America. That's yeah. that was the 13th stripe on the flag at the time. Go watch and, Home Improvement or something. Yeah, no kidding shit. And that's not even too long ago. Um but to say that the world was different or in any way kind of the same for LGBT now as it was then is just a, you can't. Yeah. You, yeah. You can't. And uh, growing up in that environment was very difficult. So all of us, if we were gay in school, we weren't talking about it that much. Yeah. And here I come in 12 and a half, 13 years old, we're in gym class, walking around the, the track to like get warmed up early in the morning. And I got this girlfriend, Jessica, who's a nurse now. She's got a... Uh, beautiful family she's we're all teenagers and her and i and our friend jenny we're all like like being curious and sharing sharing secrets with stuff and she lets the ice crack a little bit she lets something okay slide through she says i think i have a crush on a girl i said girl kick down that closet door let me tell you about what i've got going on (laughs) who does this shit in gym class chris so that was that was how I first came out of the closet. Totally railroaded my friend Jessica trying to share about her shit. And like, here I am, thump. Were you, at that point, you were like, oh, I'm gay. Like, 12, I was, 13, you're like, I'm gay. I was <laughs> waiting, like, waiting so, like, oh, hair trigger waiting for somebody to bring it up or broach the subject and yeah. say that they might be okay with it. I was looking for a soft wanted, landing yeah. for it because, support. because I was falling and I needed to tell somebody. Yeah, yeah. I don't keep secrets very well. It was kind of like I got everybody early enough that they were just like, Chris? Uh, eh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's already kind of weird. You weren't like a transfer student junior year that right. like came in a dress and you're like, guys, listen, this is who I am. Right. Like, yeah. Isn't it Chris Lixie? Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, that made it kind of easy for me. But then you get into high school. So you got your three middle schools that feed into the one high school, and then all of a sudden you're big fish or small fish in a big pond. And uh, then I realized a very crucial life lesson about being gay, that we don't have an instruction manual, by the way. We didn't have oh, one in the not... 90s. Okay. I don't know <laughs> if somebody... You can get that on Amazon or something? <laughs> Fuck, you can, you can YouTube anything yeah. right now, like a starter kit. Like I had to order mine in the mail <laughs> with a money order and had it get discreetly shipped to me. They're like, they're vintage. They're pretty rare. It's an interesting collection. Brown paper X, bag. XY Magazine. They were like for gay teenagers. Oh, okay. They were great. Yeah. They, they actually made a survival guide, but I digress. I didn't have the roadmap for it. Yeah. So when I got to high school, I realized that coming out is built up as this big singular event, like some homosexual quinceanera. It's not. It's some shit you got to do every day. Yeah. And I hate to demonize it, especially for anybody listening that's struggling with it or might be coming out or coming to terms with it. But it's kind of like an insulin pump, if you will. It's kind of always there. You kind of... You don't think about it very often. Maybe an insulin pump is a little bit too aggressive of a uh, <laughs> metaphor. But, but it's something you have to like constantly do. It's, yeah. It's not always a part of your day. You're not out there being gay all the yeah. time. But it's going to come up in conversation. It's going to come up when you meet new people. Because you're always meeting new people. Yeah. And taking I assume, new jobs. Well, I assume unless you fall under some like stereotype flamboyant umbrella where you're just like 
you can look at a guy. Oh, that guy's clearly gay. like, unless you're that person, you have to like everybody you meet, you have, you, you know, they're asking that question in their head and you have to. Think. Yeah. And at a certain point, you know, none of their business, but yeah, if it comes up, like I started a new job recently in a completely new field yeah. and I am rife with life experiences over the last nine, 10 months. So, you know, I'm teaching new people about who I am. And that stuff comes up. So it comes up all the time. And yeah. you have to, you kind of get your own flavor on how you navigate it. Yeah. Has it been, I don't know if triggering is the right word. Um, but so I, I know when I quit drinking, that's something you had to tell people constantly. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, sure, accountability. But like, if you're just out or you're out with people you may not have gotten dinner with before, or like whatever that looks like, and you go, oh, I don't drink. Uh right it's like, it's like you have to announce a detail about your life that really isn't anybody's business unless you want it to be um just to like cure their curiosity you know what it, i'm saying it kind of it, it kind of feels the same okay it's the same kind of uh like mental process i yeah. guess social process yeah i got so tired of stressing out about coming out to people yeah that i started using it as a litmus test for a couple of different things. <laughs> I want to test how dark I can go with somebody's sense of humor. Okay. I can I want to test how smart they are to catch some stuff. Like I, I play with it, you know, with this with these interactions. I love dropping it on people like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Um somebody's like, "Oh, check out that girl over there." Like, "Oh, yeah. Her brother's probably hot too." You know, just <laughs> Something to catch them off guard. Yeah. That usually helps to break the ice on it. Sometimes, yeah. Do people care sometimes? Yeah. And those interactions are usually pretty good warning signs to be like, oh, okay, I'm not going to waste my time anymore. Yeah. So what does high school look like then in that way? It's fun. I loved everything about high school, but it wasn't a very romantic time for me. Okay. I was one of two, maybe three kids that were out. I might have been the only one for a year or two. But it, was, it wasn't really gay-focused until it came up. And every time it came up, it was big. Not like violence, physical stuff very often, but if it had to be addressed, it was usually kind of a big deal. And it got pretty grating pretty fast. So there was a lot of depression that was very, very difficult to manage. It started hitting in sophomore year, and that whole year was just pretty much dark fingernails and just lashing out and just being angry i didn't know how to navigate the things i was feeling yeah. no fucking 15 year old does how did you cope with that at the time loud music <laughs> headphones <laughs> just a lot of retreating into myself yeah. a lot of self-soothing kind of things which we, we figure out a lot of things about managing uh, our mental health that are that work before we actually figure out what they are uh, a lot of, a lot of music um Playing guitar with my friends, smoking pot. We How old were you when you started smoking pot? About 13 the first time I tried it. Okay. About 14, 15 when I really started like making it a part of my week. Yeah. Did that impact, like what's your home life like at that point? And do you come out to Still your mom good. then when you're... I came out to my mom officially like as a confirmation to her, like I think in an argument in her car on the way home from like the grocery store. Okay. Um, I was really trying to use the Trump card as like coming out as a Trump card to like shut the conversation down because yeah. I was just tired of talking about whatever we oh, were yeah, talking I'm about. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. You don't know how hard it is. 
being gay. <laughs> and she's like, that doesn't get you out of being a little dick. <laughs> Touche. And then she slid in the, but of course I love you. And you yeah. know, very supportive. But it was, it was entirely glossed over because the thing that, at hand that was most important is that I was being a dick and she probably should have slapped me for that. So is this like difficult, the depression, difficulty dealing with like, emotions and some of the dickheads at school like is that bleeding into your relationship with your mom and your dad at that time absolutely okay um it was very difficult my mom was beginning her new career as a teacher okay um my stepdad is you know working as a, a defense attorney uh you know we're all kind of doing our thing mom's focusing really hard on this very challenging profession um, getting into something she's very passionate about and I was just kind of in my independent zone as such an independent kid. I kind of always was, yeah, you know, and through no fault of anybody's parenting or anything, I had to be. Did your mom go back to school then when you were mm -hmm. a kid? Yeah. Okay. Got her degree to, to teach? The earliest I can remember is I was very young, crawling around with her at Macomb Community College once in a while when she had to take me to a class okay. or going on an errand to register or something. So she started from the bottom, now she's here. Uh, she went to Macomb. My great-grandmother, her grandmother, was a registrar there forever. So it was, you know, if you were going to college, trying to get on your feet, it was Macomb. Yeah. So she went there. She did everything she could there. Went to Oakland University. Hey, I went there. Yeah. <laughs> I actually went there for a little bit there. Um she went through a couple master's degrees there, got a job teaching in Utica schools, and stayed there for the entirety of her career, and she's retiring this year nice. from Utica schools, the same building that she started in when she was doing her student teaching. Nice. As you have gotten, and I'm like skipping ahead, but to, I, I asked this because my mom went to OCC when I was a kid, mm -hmm. and like, I have a little bit of, I, I remember her like walking the stage for her associates, um, but as a kid, I... I I guess I didn't really care. <laughs> I know it sounds like me, but like, what the fuck do I know? Like, I don't know what college is. I'm fucking, you know, 10, 12 years old. Right. It was something you were getting taken to. Yeah. Um, but looking back, I can't imagine, like, as someone, it's, I just turned 40 and I'm in grad school, um, like having two kids and going to school to get this degree, um, for what for most like a small raise because that's how the world worked for women and you know the 80s and 90s um do you look back and go like how are you proud of your mom for doing that like having a kid and and going to school and this is the time where i, I have struggled my entire life trying to find the words to just say how immeasurably proud i am oh, okay. of it well i always i think those are good words right there i <laughs> hope so when I was a kid, I mean, it was, I was not an easy child to raise. I, I know that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure she would say otherwise. Um, I'm sure there were points in time where I was probably an angel, but she was working a lot. She was she, an employee at the Hollywood Markets uh, company. My father still employed with them. My grandfather was employed with them. I did a stint there, so she was working full-time through that, Family which is business. very physical labor, you know, working a grocery store in the meat back rooms and yeah. the deli counters, very physical labor. She's got a kid. She's also teaching aerobics and step fitness classes because that's what we did in the 90s. Yeah. And she was all over the place. And by virtue of 
being a single mom, so too was I. So I grew up always attached to to the hip of my mom, except when I was at school or with my grandma, who did also a tremendous job helping. You know, I had had like a fifth parent in there with my grandmother and grandfather. But I'm watching my mom accomplish all of this. And it, it actually, thanks, Mom. A lot of my depression, um, and this is not a blame thing, but um, I had a problem uh, measuring up to what she was getting done. I kept looking at these accomplishments and how hard she was working and how gracefully she was getting it done. I'm like, how do I follow that? You had that thought when you're like a teenager. Yeah. Okay. Like, ah. I'm wondering, too... uh, I'm going to try to push back a little on something just because right. I find it very, like very relatable. Like my parents divorced when I was four. We moved in with my mom's parents, my grandparents, uh, I went to school. <laughs> I, my grandparents helped raise me. Like, uh, all that is very relatable. Yeah. <laughs> I think we like to put things either here or there, uh, like in a dichotomy, like a, this or that either, or, and I've recently last few years, like come to accept, hopefully, hopefully my mother can accept, um, <laughs> My mom did the best she could do, and that is great. And so I'm not going to fault her for anything because, you know, like she did the best she could do mm-hmm. at the same time. <laughs> and I only I picked up like when you're like, I was a shitty kid. I have thought that way about myself many times. I was a terrible child, but the operative part of that sentence is I was a child. Exactly. And so I can't feel guilty for that because I was just trying to manage emotions that I didn't understand, couldn't comprehend. And that doesn't mean I have to put the blame on the adult in the situation. Mm. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. like I was acting out because there was probably things that weren't being provided for me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's a spectrum. (laughs) It is 100% a spectrum. And it's, it's tough to look at your own past objectively yeah and it's even harder to take what you've analyzed of your own past objectively and convey it to someone else in a conversation that's probably going to be listened to the people that are being discussed in this very podcast yeah i I, um it's it's hard to not censor ourselves when we think about it's tricky to navigate that but in the interest of you know a conversation it honestly it's honesty yeah yeah. um like i said i'm immeasurably and tremendously proud of all of my parents, you know, I get to in a modern human society, you know, I get to say that all of my parents, grandparents yeah. and otherwise, I'm tremendously pow- proud. All of them have made it as far as they are, as far as they did, what have you, because I am an imperfect human being. We all know that Aren't we all? My, my closest family and friends, especially have seen that in me quite recently. They've seen me at my worst. How can I fault anybody else for anything that they do? Yeah. The difference is that you're trying. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the motivations. It's yeah. what's the motive here? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Why are they doing the things that they're doing? Yeah. Love, what motivates the them? Question why? Why? <laughs> and then that brings me into something that I've been visiting the last 9 months through my recovery and it's a value system. Yeah. Like that is 
probably the best way to express individualism and what makes somebody unique and how they tick. Like not at only, your core, who are you? Not only who you are and what you want to be, but how you're expressive and how you interact with the world around you, which is mostly made up of other people for better or worse. <laughs> okay, so let's go back real quick. You're 16, depressed, mm-hmm. smoking weed, gothing out with your fingernails. Yeah. <laughs> How does high school shape up? How are you doing academically? Like, what is? how do you finish school? I am, so I'm all, I'm kind of all over the map. Okay. I'm one of these probably undiagnosed ADHD kids that's hyper-focused on things that interest me. And if you can't, if the teacher I have isn't presenting it in a way where I could get a nibble on this hook that they're kind of getting, yeah. I'm failing your class. Um, if you're handing worksheets out to me, you know, to do math equations, it, it, I'm not doing this shit when I go home. I'm sorry. Homework. I have a PlayStation at home. Yeah. You make a, a Math Blaster. Remember Math Blaster? Why does that sound familiar? That's what was old, that? like MS DOS math video game. Okay, yeah, yeah. When yeah, we yeah, were yeah. kid kids, yeah, we played the ever loving shit out of that because they found a way to make math kind of fun. Uh, like, I didn't want to do worksheets. Yeah. yeah. I wanted math. Like, I liked being. I'm one of the kids that responded well to inspiration, but I was also lazy in that sense. I was hyper focused and did what I wanted. But I got it for the most part. Yeah. Um, so grades were up and down, but they were still pretty good. Music is where I excelled in middle school and high school. What do you in what capacity? Um, I was an instrumentalist. I uh, I played tuba, and then in high school I learned jazz trumpet, and I was playing guitar at home with friends and bass guitar mostly because everyone needs a bass. I was the sidekick. <laughs> I knew my place. I was the sidekick. And so were you in the jazz band too? Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. When you say that that was like your thing in school, what do you mean to that degree? If I had to have an identity okay. in high school, it was going to be band kid. Okay. Um, it's a good community. Yeah, it's a great community. <laughs> uh, junior, senior year, that turned into, I collected another identity. It was a yearbook kid, nice. the photographer kid. So Lost I art. hyper-focused <laughs> on that. I took a night class at... Uh, CCS, nice. College for Creative Studies uh-huh. in Detroit, uh, one of the premier art schools of Michigan. Did that create any determination to want to go there? 100%. Okay. Absolutely. My mother had a friend, uh, was a librarian there as well. So I got like a private tour. And, uh, but yeah, so there was this night class in black and white film photography. Nice. I was developing my own film and taking shots and using projectors and putting or putting them on the paper it was wonderful it was truly fascinating and i was all over the place on the surface to somebody on the outside looking in i probably looked like this hyper-focused uh high schooler getting ready for a a well-rounded college education or something and what was really happening is i was looking for community and distraction and trying to squeeze every bit of dopamine out of my brain that i possibly could because something was going on in there that I wasn't really getting any of it. Yeah. So I'm starting to... So in the last nine months, I've, I got sober a little over nine months ago. I jumped into therapy. Like so good. And a lot of us have been in some kind of therapy most of our lives. Not as many as we need. Not as many as we need. <laughs> therapy that works. I can yeah. rephrase that. Therapy that works. Because my mother did the right thing. You know, I was going through this divorce. My father was struggling with alcoholism. And she wanted a therapist for me to help me navigate these feelings and the things that I was seeing and learning. Yeah. 
the big grown-up kind of things that ch children shouldn't have to navigate. So I started therapy real early, um, got used to it, and it only somewhat recently did it start setting in and working well. You'd come across some good tips once in a while through the years, like something would work for a little bit, something would feel close to like progress, and it would be progress, and then it would wane off. And then now recently I found stuff that really, really clicks. I'm in the recovery community and getting lots of headlong diagnoses and treatments and ADHD kind of came up. I had a therapist that, you know, do you think you are? And I was like, well, I mean, maybe I, I might have like some flavors of it, some aura of ADHD because very common comorbidity with substance use and ADHD. Yes. And also too, I respect the medical community and I have not been diagnosed. I cannot diagnose myself. No one can. Not according to TikTok. <laughs> Come on, people. You can't. You, you can't. Yeah. Somebody else has got to diagnose you. I have a copy of the DSM-5. I've read it, taken classes in it. Yeah, one right over there. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once you see it, you see it everywhere. Um, I, you can't diagnose yourself. You can get more familiar with what's going on. You can kind of recognize behaviors in yourself. But am I a little off the wall in ADHD sometimes? Sure. Is that offensive to people that actually have full-blown ADHD that go through struggles that I have never experienced or could never I hope not, because that's not the way I intended. So what does the next phase of your life look like getting out of high school? And you said you went to OU. Was that immediate? Yeah, that was immediately after high school. Okay. There's a funny story leading up to that. And this is the climax to the end of this. I'm going to say like the second act. <laughs> like <laughs> we're about to fall off a cliff. As you may or may not know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and one company that really helps bring mental wellness to the forefront of our, of our minds, of our conversations, is Wellbeing Brewing. Wellbeing, it's right there in the name, they are concerned with your mental well-being. And while not everybody is sober, uh, alcohol content is something you should be aware of, you know, how much you're drinking and and. Wellbeing Brewing offers a lot of really great options with uh, no alcohol, including sparkling waters with CBD and a number of really great craft beers that, again, no alcohol. All right, so grab a non-alcoholic beer and grab some sparkling water. Do whatever you do to keep your well-being in check during Mental Health Awareness Month, and you can save 10% on your order by going to wellbeingbrewing.com slash friend request that's the name of the show or use code friend request at checkout and save yourself 10 percent on your order i hope you guys are looking after your own well-being and if you uh are imbibing in some well-being brewing tag me i want to see it i want to hear about it all right enjoy back to the episode we're getting into junior high school and i find my people my tribe I find my best friend, Richard, and these family of friends, this, this crew in the neighborhood and the friends at school that really revolve around like these three or four people in my life. And I'm, I'm feeling connection. I have individuals that cherish me and love me for me, that accept me. That's and great. I have a tribe. Yeah. And it's, it does wonders for the latent, super sad, angry, pissed off emo boy. You know, yeah. I have people, I have belonging. I have love. It's really everybody wants it. Yeah. So I start blossoming in junior year. I kind of take a deep dive into the early 2000s hippie movement. 
I'm wearing hemp necklaces, hemp anklets. I've got long, flowing, curly blonde hair. Oh, yeah? It's insane. I got a picture oh. somewhere. I'm going to have to dig it up on my phone. I snapped a picture at my aunt's house, my senior picture. <laughs> but I'm wearing tie-dye everywhere. We're outside. We're playing disc golf. We're going hiking. I'm having a wonderful time. Yeah. 16 is where I'm really blossoming. 17 is great. It's my senior year in high school. I've got five band classes and yearbook class in my senior That's year. That's your schedule? That's my Jesus. senior year schedule. That's the dream right there. I had it dicked. The world was my oyster 2005, and I was having a blast. <laughs> it was great. I had a little job. I was a clerk at a at the grocery store. I was working in Hollywood at the time. I had a little bit of spending cash. The purchasing power of a dollar was a little bit better for a teenager then. Things were good. <laughs> so my senior year, I get recruited into auditioning for Oakland University in the music program. Oh, okay. Um, I hadn't had college plans. I didn't know what I was going to do, didn't know what I wanted to be. Was there any pressure from parents? A bit. Okay. So, so not a lot this. of pressure, but still like... It know. was the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the way. It's such yeah. is the time. Such is the time. Yeah. 2002, 2003. over there. This is the way. College, job, family. So things are going good. Um, I'm getting recruited to go to college. Yeah. Not a bad place to be. So here's where I get, instead of like pushing to go and do something of my own volition, because you push a 17-year-old to do something that he doesn't care to do. Yeah. See what happens. So then I get pulled from another direction. There, the place out there wants me to come. Yeah. Okay. Let's give this a whirl. I got a lot of pressure put on me really fast. I got into there thinking I was a pretty damn good tuba player. They must want me. Yeah. Like, they want me. I must be pretty good. And I got the spot. Nice. I was a freshman tubist. Instantly, I went from being top dog at a public high school in the tuba department, of which there was, you know, I was the only senior. I was the only freshman, only undergraduate tubist, or uh, underclassman tubist in the entire school. There were no sophomore tubas. There was just me, the one freshman. In all of Oakland University Symphony, there was three other tubists, three or four, who were just worlds away, way better than I was. Yeah, I was going into a music program where kids were preparing from the start to be in. I was, I was all of a sudden way out of my element. We're throwing down and learning these great, you know, pieces and times and culture and musical culture, and it's expressive and it's joyful. And it's, it's wonderful. And then it gets to college and it's work and it's practice and it's work and it's more practice and it's rehearsal and it's a concrete room for six hours a day on top of going to work. And what the hell did I sign up for? Yeah. And I broke. And I broke on November 12th, 2005. We got a date. We got okay. a date. Because I obsessed over this date for about 10 years after this probably too. November 12th is the day that the cards came crashing down. I was deeply in love with a boy that I met in school. Uh, I'm not going to use his name. I'm not going to give... Good call. I'm okay. not going to give that one credence because <laughs> he shows up a little later in my story too. Deeply in love and then deeply devastated. Uh, earlier in June of that year, uh, he may or may not have cheated on me and there was this whole big fight long drawn out about that but i was crushed like it broke me into yeah. the feeling of being cheated on when everything was going well it was like being t-boned in a in a car crash like it just takes you off your feet and i dealt with that kind of got over it 
and we started dancing around each other again in November when I'm in school and it doesn't end well. And I've got juries coming up and juries for a music student are basically your finals. Yeah. Uh, I got those coming up and I'm not prepared for them. I've got a solo recital as a freshman. There's like several bands that play earlier in the performance leading up to me with a piano accompanist and my professor has got me playing the same piece that I auditioned with that I couldn't play properly because my mouth was all fucked up <laughs> and I have been working on this piece of music for one year it's six and a half minutes of music I've been working on it every single day for one year and I've got to play it in front of a bunch of people including my family and the audience and I've got all these other classes and exams and I'm failing and I'm not doing well and then I got in a fight with my boyfriend and I was speeding on the way home on 75 and I got a speeding ticket for the first time in my life from a state trooper he pulls me over and he yells at me first for pulling over in the left lane because I was in the left lane apparently you're not supposed to do that tears streaming down my face and he says you're not going to get out of a speeding ticket by crying I was already crying <laughs> And it just, I got the ticket, I was crying, and I just rolled the window up, and it was the most crystallizing moment in my life, and it was the deepest, most darkest, tragic moment in my life. It stopped. I broke. On the side of 75 by Square Lake Road, I broke. I stopped being sad. I was not I was no longer in despair. I was just done. Just numb? Numbed. Yeah. I just, it was my body, my brain, my defense mechanisms just shut everything down. You just like dissociate or? I, I probably sat there for like 30, 40 minutes. Okay. Um, I, I got back to it, drove home. I think I went into my bedroom and I didn't come out for a month. I stopped going to classes. I never went to my jury. I just stopped. And... About the only thing I did do was go to work. For some reason in me, I was raised by like union family, you know, both sides. I was like, you just, you go to work. People are dependent on you. (laughs) Uh, That probably saved my life for a while. Just having the one thing, infallible thing that must be done in my life, that value, you know, you go to work, you agreed to go to work, it's a commitment. That probably kept me on life support for a while. So November 12th, it was just... It was riding high. It was this momentous crescendo, and it was getting turbulent toward the top. It was crumbling under the weight, and and then dust. I'm sad that no one got that visual. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. You're, uh, you've quit everything. You've stopped feeling everything. <laughs> I am You're working in a grocery store. I am 18 years old. I'm also waiting tables. So in between here, I got my first. I cut my teeth in restaurants. This is going to be a major theme for the rest of my life is my restaurant addiction. Yeah. And fits right into the alcohol. Oh, <laughs> and alcohol fit right into it. So I was starting to make some money and I restaurants are always there for you. When you're having a rough time in your life, it is not hard to find work in restaurants. Yeah. I wanted to say that it it's it's not hard to work in restaurants because it is. It is a soul-crushing <laughs> grueling industry that if you play it right you can you can eke some good money out of it but it's always there for you 
And that was the only constant, again, the theme of work. I was going to work and making money and trying to figure out what the fuck I was going to do. Being angry the entire time at my situation. Too. Yeah. Is that the next chunk of your life? Just waiting tables and treading water? Friends and, I mean, yeah. treading water. Really? Yeah. I did the same thing. <laughs> it's just like I broke and I, I just kept going with the flow. Okay. Uh, uh, so, treading water. Tread water, making it, hoping for some kind of something. My uh, This is when my aunt kind of swoops in. She tries to get me on a good uh, career path that was very good for her. She said, hey, my company is merging with some other company, another big one, and there are some openings for some entry-level positions at the office in Troy. It's kind of close to you. Pays well. I can probably help you get your foot in the door. All right, Aunt Trudy, that sounds good. Get me out of restaurants. That sounds good. A day job, you know, gets you with all that. Sure. And I did that. I got the job and I did that for a few years, which was weird. I was in a job where I wasn't working with other teenagers or this like kind of minimum wage, you know, underbelly, blue collar. Yeah, you're in the job that a lot of people end up getting at like 25. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of the, the white collar job, the cubicle job. Yeah, yeah. And so, how long are you there? Top of my head, probably about three years. Okay. And then came the DUI. Ooh. Oh. This is when alcohol starts really becoming a problem in my life. So this is early. Uh, 21. Yeah. So you're j- technically only then legally Then drinking legally, only technically drinking. Um, DUI. The worst part of... I, I guess my early alcoholism would be like binge drinking on the yeah, weekends yeah. with my friends. But yeah, so we're drinking a little bit and, and then this, the DUI happens and then it's a problem. You know, um, shit, I got caught. What's the, yeah, what's driving. the repercussion? Because that your first time, like, how does that work? Do they, do they put you in classes? Like It was, uh, hey, your first time. I spent the night in jail, got probation. It was Troy. Um, you call this phone number in the morning. You go. You might have to pee. Yeah. You might have to pee. You probably blow. Pay this, oh, yeah, you play all this money, and just congratulations, you're not in jail today. Yeah, <laughs> but like every day, you could probably be in jail. But here I am, 21, thinking I'm smart, right? I don't have a problem. Yeah. This, you're, you're telling me when and how you're gonna test me. All right, I can do the math. If I have a six pack, I can stop drinking by 11 and metabolism and blah blah blah. So I started trying to game the system. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can cheat. I can figure it out. You can't. They're going to get you. You're going to screw up. They've been doing it a long time. <laughs> Here's the funny thing about it. They're not actively going out to try to catch you when you're screwing up. Yeah. They're waiting. They just built the web. Yeah. You will screw yourself up. You will shoot yourself in the foot. You will not play by the rules, and they will find out. And I actually showed up to a meeting at my probation officer's office, uh, like an appointment, still drunk from the night before. Bummer. She walks out of her office, comes back with a PBT, portable breathalyzer test, has me blow in the tube, doesn't show me what it was. If, if it was a 0001, I'm fucked, you know, at this point in the morning. And she goes back out. She comes back in. She, I forget the metrics of the conversation, but I can tell you it was kind of a not a good one. And she pulled some strings. There was a sitting judge hearing cases right then. She pulled me right in there immediately for a probation violation. For that, immediately in front of a judge. Had I known now what I know then, or had I, had then I know, you know what I mean. (laughs) 
I would have immediately lawyered up. Yeah. You don't just pull me into a courtroom for an immediate hearing. They totally twisted their hand on this one. I should have lawyered up, but I didn't. Judge is pissed, puts everything in the record, sets a date for a, a, a sentencing. So the hearing was done, found guilty, sentencing uh, further out. And I go home and tell my parents, like, what the fuck? I was living in a house I was renting in Madison Heights at the time. But I, I tell my dad, because, like, dad, what the fuck? What do I do? And uh, I can't exactly remember what was said about this either, but I remember a couple, a few weeks later, I was standing in a courtroom thinking I might get a slap on the wrist or something. The judge says 14 days in jail. Or I think he gave me 30 was the sentence, and I ended up getting out in 14 because OCJ was way viciously overpopulated, Oakland County Jail. But I got a jail sentence. Like, a a hoof. And that was a very terrible experience. Yeah. I, uh, half a star. Wouldn't recommend. <laughs> so I don't know. there was no point where they were like, you have to go do like 30 meetings, 30 days or a program of some sort. It was just not like really. Jail, no probation jail. It kind of <laughs> felt like they, I played my cards when I said, I'm going to game your system and I'm yeah, going to do yeah. it anyway. And they said, bet fuck you. Which made me pissed off. So I'm in jail, pissed off, thinking I'm going to get out of here. most people in jail are probably pissed off. I'm going to get out of here. This case is going to be closed. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to drink a couple of big-ass Guinnesses and eat some Jets pizza because for some reason that's what I craved for the like my incarcerated time. And, and I'm that's going on your back. record. Like... Yeah, it's there. Yeah, it's it, cool. just, it just happens. It's there. And... So I went to jail and I did the thing. And so I lost my white collar job because I can't go to work. Yeah. You know, I was doing some pretty cool stuff at this time. I was a stock option specialist. I was working in adjustments and corrections, working on massive stock trades. Uh, I'm talking from working in corrections to a correctional facility. facility. <laughs> title your book. It was uh, crazy. I had to be like a recon nightmare. I was, it was working with transactions that were upward of like 50, 60, hundred million dollars several dozens of them in a tranche like at a time that's crazy mind-boggling and uh i could have had a, a successful future in that 100 percent. i had a knack for it i hyper focused on it i was interested in it and i was learning stuff about it and impressing people just because i i thought it was cool and then that whoop fuck that up <laughs> yeah without even realizing it back to restaurants then Hell, of course <laughs> yeah that's yeah. what i had <laughs> I, Who knows that you're in jail for 14 days? And how is the, what's that like coming out of it? Everyone. <laughs> everyone knew. Um, coming out of it was... I, f I was preparing for a lot more backlash and a lot more discussion about it than I got. Okay. And I think a lot of my life fits into that. I think I prepare for a lot worse than I actually get. I overthink and I overanalyze all that. And it was kind of like, okay, you're done with that now. You took your licks. I mean, how can we make your life any harder than 14, 15 days in Oakland County Jail? If there's a lesson to be learned there, you probably fucking learned it. And if you hadn't... It's on you. What can I do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what can anybody do if 15 days in OCJ doesn't do it? So, what can you do? So, here I'm out doing my own thing, finding my own way, wherever the hell it is. And uh, it's restaurants. Yeah. And it's back to treading water. 
you know, I reached for the sun and I burnt my wings and here we are doing it again, waiting for the next thing to come around and maybe change my momentum. Blackthorn pulled me out of the treading water phase of staying local to where I was and working in restaurants and thinking I was doing well to uprooting my life and living on somebody's couch 45 miles away, working in a new restaurant that's opening that's slightly more exciting, thinking I'm doing well. I jumped whole hog into learning craft beer, you know, more. And I started kind of teaching. I it, Rory let me do this class one time. It was like an intro to craft beer class. Okay. And I still have the buckets I bought. I bought these like tin buckets, filled them with full of ice. And I got like perfect examples of introductory beer styles. Th- then things got dark again, you know. I uh, The depression started coming back really hard. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure what fostered that or maybe what fueled that fire but maybe it was being in a town outside of my tribe you know i lost touch with some old friends and trying to make a put down roots in a new area which really isn't that far away from home but was far enough yeah i didn't have a car at the time too so 45 miles might have been might as well have been chicago and it was hard for me i was drinking for the wrong reasons as if you know, and I don't want to be preachy about like drinking. Like I'm like for me personally, yeah. there is no right reason for Christopher Lixie to drink. Yeah, there is, um, there just isn't. But I was drinking for the wrong reasons then because I was sad. I was numbing. I was eking, squeezing out as much dopamine as I could. There's a recurring theme. Yeah, like I drink, I feel good. I party with people, I feel good. So that does what it usually does. It snowballs. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And the depression gets worse and worse and worse. And they feed on each other. And that leads to a very, very serious suicide attempt in January of 2014. Um, I should have mentioned a trigger warning on this episode <laughs> somewhere right. before. So maybe we do a little snip tip with this before. Trigger warning. No, thoughts the Thoughts in this episode include suicide. Um, so, yeah. So I there was a suicide attempt in my apartment on College Street in uh, 2014. I was in a drunken stupor. Like, I had started the day drinking. I went around to the Moose Lodge and Blackthorn and the Holly Hotel, like, hit all the stops, just trying to pull myself out of whatever. I was trying to bury that those yeah, feelings yeah. down, and they just exploded. Like, I just... I had this like stupid, like not really a stupid plan, but the the plan you develop on your in the back of your mind the whole time you're growing up depressed. I guess I'm talking to people that know <laughs> there are some of you out there that have that plan. Don't ever act on it. Get help, please. But there's there's a plan, and it just clicked. It was like you know you got the box cutter, you got the bats up full of water. Go for it. And without the gory details, yeah, I went for it didn't work i was too drunk to make it happen apparently or something subconsciously in me wasn't allowing myself to cut deep enough i don't know but it didn't work and i went downstairs to my neighbors downstairs uh a couple who tremendous people love them i we worked with them at blackthorn or uh, at least the at least one of them like four o'clock in the morning, I knock on their door, pound on their door. They come out immediately, throw me in their car, and drive me up to Genesis Hospital. And then it, a very similar situation in November twelfth. Like I just, I'm numb. Yeah. I just shut down and I go to basic startup firmware boot from operating system. 
and that's and that looks a lot like me with a sitter and a hospital bed not restrained but i've got stitches in my wrist and i'm watching reruns of house md trying to make conversation with this woman to make her feel more comfortable in a room with me yeah <laughs> and then it was havenwick uh inpatient psychiatric yeah for about a month um so i was reeling from just no self-esteem just i want the pain to be gone i want everything to be over i want it to stop completely yeah like i had already broken but it wasn't good nothing was okay nothing i wasn't treading water anymore i was drowning but i wouldn't i i was drowning but i i wouldn't die so i tried to hasten the process and when you try to do that when you make that decision it's there just isn't coming back from it whether or not you're successful there just isn't a way to come back out of it yeah everything is different after it especially when you make the decision it doesn't work and then everybody knows about it Um, so i'm 45 minutes away i'm in the hospital and my phone call is to my cousin megan they go to the nurse's station i call her and she mobilizes the family you know obviously i tell her not to tell anybody but i put this on her and she didn't deserve it but she uh in the back of my mind when i thought of like who i need to call that's going to be strong that's going to help me and also support me but also like maybe have some discretion it's going to be cousin meg yeah the panic in her voice and how angry she was it it threw me in that that moment it took me from wherever i was dissociating and it threw me in that chair in that moment I was expecting to call my buddy to help me out of the situation. Yeah. And I got a real hard lesson in what in the fuck did you just do? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, why, why are you trying to hurt my friend, Chris? Yep. And it, it yeah. Hey, I'm Dick. so glad you said that. <laughs> why are you trying to, why are you trying to hurt my friend, Chris? So glad you said that because there's this thing that comes up in recovery all the time. And it's when we're trying to like get people, like we're trying to get ourselves and other people to realize like, what are you doing to yourselves? It's if you treated your or if somebody treated you the way you're treating yourself, yeah, you'd fucking hit them in the face. Yeah, you'd want nothing to do with that person. Yeah. You would do everything you could to excise them. Easy from lesson your life. in a negative self-talk. Yeah, don't yeah. let it happen. You wouldn't say it to a stranger. Don't say it to yourself. Right. Or <laughs> if you would be pissed if somebody said that to you, remember that you're saying it to yourself right now. Yeah, yeah. You so she. <laughs> so Megan brought me right back down to earth, and in a very quick way (laughs) and uh here we go uh into intensive psychotherapy and psych and treatment for severe depression and suicide unfortunately and this is still probably true of the mental health community i guess i'll say it's inadequate this is how it failed me and this is how i failed myself doing it my life had already become unmanageable, not to quote the AA book, but here we are. My life had already be- had become unmanageable, and I tried to stop it. So here I am, fresh into life again from a suicide attempt. I tried to die, and here I am coming out, and I've got a, I've got three therapists. I'm about to get back into the world after treatment, three therapists, a bunch of doctor's appointments I need to go to, a bunch of medicines I have to take and manage by myself. I live alone in a one-bedroom apartment I'm about to be evicted from because I can't pay my bills and my rent because I'm blowing it all on booze. 
how in the hell am I supposed to get what I'm supposed to get out of therapy? Yeah. When I can't even remember to shave. <laughs> and uh, it was a broken system. It still is. And it, the things were there out there for me. I'm sure I could have got them if I had the capacity to get them for myself. Yeah. Can I ask what, and this is partially like professional curiosity, right? Like mm. this is the field I'm going into. Um, looking back, what, in, in a perfect scenario, what would you have needed or wanted at that? moment i'm glad you asked because i don't have a fucking answer for it <laughs> so because that, that's i think the other problem right yeah. it's like you I guys are giving me what i want but also like i don't know what i want i don't know yeah i don't I, know what i, I want I I and i don't know what have worked what would have worked because yeah. it didn't work yeah I, I i didn't find it yeah i don't know um i i saw what worked for other people i tried to do that you know mm. we try to go to 12-step meetings and a lot of recovery and forced recovery. So alcohol like, is like at this point, this uh, you're acknowledging like that. Not yet. Okay. See, I'm not acknowledging it. It is. But is it brought up in like therapy and stuff at this oh, point? Oh God, so yeah. Like it is. My whole <laughs> life is revolving around the fact that alcohol is my problem, but I'm not acknowledging it. Got it. It has fully acknowledged me. <laughs> okay. It's got me. I haven't even noticed that I'm in its room. You know. Yeah. And I think I can't remember what it was, but something latent in the suicide attempt and the treatment after it and trying to live again, something clicks. Like if you want to find purpose, like go help people like join the fucking army or something like from a waiting. So I, I decided that I wanted to get into medicine. I decided that I wanted to be an EMT or a paramedic and help people at a crisis point. Like the people that helped me. What a shift. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, maybe I could find some purpose in helping others. Yeah. You know, maybe that could inspire me to want to be around. Enter uh, codependency, rescuer yeah. uh, personalities. So I moved back home. You know, I, I started going to school and got a job as a patient transporter. Things are happening really fast, right? Yes, we're yeah. doing things. We're hyper-focusing on something else, and it's taking us for a ride. What's drinking like during this time? It's happening a lot, right? Right? And then work is getting hard. Life is getting hard. We're, I'm going to school during the day, and I'm working midnight shifts. So I'm drinking after work in the morning to relax from the night shift. And then going to school. <laughs> and then going to sleep for a couple hours and going to school, yeah. as if I've slept for a whole night. And had a weekend to recover. Yeah. So, so here I am in this position, like I'm working in hospital and there's, I don't mean to scare anybody, but there's alcoholism everywhere you go. Yeah. You know, there's substance abuse. Built into society. It is, <laughs> it is so built into it. It is such a crutch and it, God damn, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it feeds on itself and it, it just keeps feeding the fuel and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I burn out. Yet again, yeah. <laughs> burn the candle at both ends, and here comes what third burnout, third or fourth. Who keeps count anymore? So there's this pattern. There is a pattern throughout this whole thing. It's something new, high, 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 and then crash, crash, and then something new, and then crash. And this is repetitive. It is repetitive. 
and I'm still not learning my lesson. I'm still not learning what the hell is wrong with me. But I know there's something wrong. <laughs> like, lights are flashing. Yeah. But apparently I'm colorblind. It's just somebody's not paying the bill. Uh, lights are flashing. There's something wrong. So deep, deep crash, building back up. It's going, it's going, it's going. And then it's crash. It's what? DUI. Oh. Number two. Um, it wasn't a crash or anything. Uh, thankfully, nobody got hurt. Thankfully, I never hurt anybody when I was behind the wheel drinking. Uh, for that, I'm internally thankful. I don't know what I would do. You always feel guilty in recovery. Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. yeah. Ev- for every night, every moment that you ever drove when you shouldn't have, you all- you'll always feel guilty for it. And I think I should, maybe. But at the same time, guilt and shame has no place, but whatever. So in comes DUI number two out of Royal Oak. Somewhat recently, this was in 2019. Okay. So breweries turned into culinary. Yeah. I had made this realization while I was being a a server at Dragon Mead that I wanted to take my skills and actually make some kind of semblance of a career out of the only thing I knew at the time or coming back to was restaurants and food service. Long story short, next semester, I started culinary school. Sure. And I loved it. You know, I got a job at a really nice restaurant. I took off running. That's great. I took on more shifts. I went full time. I started learning more stations. And then through a couple of people leaving and things happening, an opportunity perked up for me to rise into management. Really quickly, I was offered a sous chef position in this very, very well-respected kitchen with some very big big time chefs. It was hard. It was stressful. It was fast. I was wearing my body down and my liver down and kind of getting nowhere. I felt for those five years of being a chef, I was getting somewhere and building something, a team, a career, a reputation. Maybe I could take it somewhere. And then DUI. (laughs) And then DUI. So what is, yeah, what does that look like? What does round two look like? Well, now I'm listening to probation officers and judges, and now the thing that I have at stake to lose is my career. Yeah. And I'm identifying, I'm attaching my identity to this career. I am Chef Chris. And yeah. it's, this is right around the time where I'm a sous chef and I'm training people and hiring people and teaching people specifically. And I love this part of this job. That That kind of surprised me is how much I enjoyed teaching. The DUI is, the probation is happening, so I'm sober, um, I'm forced to be sober, yeah. you know? Uh, and I'm, I, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I realize that I need to be, but I don't like it. I needed, at the time I was, I needed to drink vodka to immediately numb and immediately feel warm and immediately release all that stuff I wanted to release. Yeah. And it was it was terrible not having it. I tried tricking the system again. I tried substituting it and hyper focusing on playing guitar again and I bought a ton of guitars. <laughs> and I started I got some joy out of building Lego sets, so I bought a ton of Legos. Started playing video games incessantly, like got way back into it. Yeah. Just picking off huge chunks of things of my past to yeah. try to like what can i fill all this time what with? can i do yeah. you know because i'm going insane and it 
I was forced to become sober and I wasn't ready to be sober. So I didn't stay sober. My alcoholism was so inside of me and so hardwired and coded into my firmware that until I handled that, it was still going to be there. Yeah. And it was always going to come back. So I started drinking and just as quickly as we started the last time, our quick our drinking quickly becomes where it was yeah. before. Pick up where you left off. Exactly. Yeah. And your tolerance, boom. You have like that one night where you're wasted and you wake up, you're like, oh, we're back. Yeah. You go back to your corner bar with the first hangover you've had in a while. And it's like you never missed a beat, you know. And that caught up with me. This judge in Royal Oak gave me a choice. My probation officer gave me a couple of choices. Judge in Royal Oak gave me the choice. You go to rehab, uh, county offered rehab for 30 days, or you go to jail for 30 days, and then your case is closed. Like, it's done. You're over. You're kicked off probation, closed, with improvement, successfully completed, rehab or jail, your choice. Uh, rehab. Sounds great. This is the nine months ago? No. Oh, okay. This is a couple years ago. <laughs> okay. If I was ready for it, I probably would have done well. I tried to convince myself that I was going to do it and stay sober, but I didn't. I learned a lot from it, but it didn't work. The first time at rehab did not work. And leaving this situation, now I'm off paper. My case is done. And I got nobody holding me accountable except me. Go nuts. Go nuts. My parents were trying to hold me accountable. Um, Specifically, my mom and my stepdad. It was very much um, a kind of like, I'm worried about you kind of love. Yeah. Which is just not, I didn't respond well to that at all. Made me feel worse about it. Made me regress yeah, shame more. Spiral. Shame spiral. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, what finally brings you to the brinking, the breaking point, the brink? The I bottom. I, I keep pick a B word. <laughs> it's a it's a slow and agonizing spiral to the bottom. My face gets puffier and redder from the the long alcohol abuse, and it was gonna be the long game. It was gonna kill me. Yeah. It was drinking a pint of vodka a day or more um, on the way home, at home. I wasn't drinking quite yet, like in the morning to like wake up and get over it. Yeah. But it was very soon after and the depression. And then all of a sudden it gets to this one night. It was last, uh, had to be last July, end of July. I had a, a day off. It was a Thursday or Friday random Friday night off and I did what any alcoholic chef on a fucking Friday night off would do. I went out and got blitzed and I came home and I had a kind of a, a fight with my mom, uh, like a, a head on discussion. Really? We don't do a lot of conflict in our family, not easily at least. So like her addressing this and bringing this into the room, like, what are you doing? Like, what the fuck you, yeah. you get caught again, you get another to you while you're going to prison. If I get number three, I'm going to prison. Like, and I'm How still... do you still have a license at this point? They're so they like... take it away after, for a while. And they just go back. So, yeah. So my my second DUI was technically long. It was long enough from my first that they sentenced me as a first. Okay. But it was still on there as a second. Yeah, yeah. So no matter what, if I get another one, like, this is still true of me and Sober Chris. Like, yeah, yeah. if I get another DUI, I'm done. I'm yeah, toast. Yeah. Going to prison. Um. But that was true of me then when I was still using and still drinking and still driving, working 
in the restaurants, I, that was still hanging over my head and I knew it. Yeah. I'm smart enough to know that that's the reality of my situation, but I still fucking did it. Yeah. And then after this fight, I, I just, the shame spiral just like came like into a free fall. Like this is now like close to intervention status with my family. The one person, one of like a few people who really hold the key to like how I feel about myself, you know, their image of me, like it's, it's in jeopardy right now. They, they're looking down on me and very worried and it's becoming crystalline reality. I spend the next couple hours in my room. I'm about to write another suicide note. Like actually leave a note this time. I'm about to do this, this again. I'm making this choice and this, this choice is in my mind. I'm actively deciding, okay, you can either go to get help. Like you need to go whole hog help. Like you were at the bottom. There are two ways out of this. You either don't see tomorrow or you start tomorrow giving everything up and having somebody else come get you because you're not going to do this. You can't do this. You cannot pick yourself up from where you are right now. You either stay here and die or you have somebody else come save your life. And this is the first time you like, I actually have to go like send out a flare. I need, I need help. You're admitting you're helpless. This is the first time in my life. I had enough courage and strength left in the tank to do it. And I know the reality of the situation is that so many people don't. Because earlier in my life, the first suicide attempt, I didn't. And that's why it existed. The fact that I went through terrible and agonizing treatment at Havenwick, the fact that I had to try and fail at therapy so many times... The fact that I was in some kind of form of therapy for most of my life had instilled, again, into my firmware, this rubric. Like it or not, you hear it 50, 60 times your entire life or more than that. You you know, like I'm having a suicidal thought right now. I'm having a conscious, I'm making a conscious decision. What Do I want to live or do I want to die? Alarm bells start going off in your mind and all of a sudden you're like a, on SEAL Team 6 of like mental health issues. Like your training will kick in, soldier. Yeah. This is your training. This is all of my therapists in my head at once saying, what the fuck are you doing? Like we prepared you for this. Yeah. Quick Google search. I had talked to other people that went to this particular uh, institution I was at. Skywood Recovery. Huge Skywood shout out. For Skywood, you guys saved my life. No show, no shit. I called them. Somebody answered the phone. That was the big thing. Because I heard good things about uh, Mayview or uh, a, a Henry Ford Hospital out there. Eminem went there. It was a big deal. I called them. They didn't pick up the phone. I called Skywood. They picked up the phone. I had insurance through the restaurant. Not many chefs have insurance, but I have health insurance. And I said, just fucking, I'm drunk. Just fucking run my insurance. You know, do they pay for anything? And they came back with, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Your insurance covers a stay with us. And this is like rich people rehab. Yeah. This is passages, Michigan. And I said, okay, let's go. When, when can you have me? And they said, give us a couple of days to have a bed open, but here's your date. Fuck it. Gave up. Going to rehab. This time of my choosing. This time I chose, instead of dying, instead of actively going out and killing myself again, I chose to live. 
I didn't know what that was going to look like. I was terrified. Yeah. I knew the reality that making that choice was going to be, I was about to embark on the hardest, most grueling process I'll ever go through. And I didn't even have the energy in me to shave in the morning or clip my toenails. So what's your sober date? 8222. 8222. 8222. He loves them dates. <laughs> so I got so I mean in the interest of, of time, let me tell me some of the bigger takeaways over the last nine months. The bigger takeaways in the last month, last nine months. Sometimes, and I, I sometimes recovery is selfish. Self-care is selfish. The outsider looking in, self-care is extremely selfish. And to you, that who is actually caring for yourself, it is selfish. And it should be. Yeah. Because if you're in a position where Only you need to... you can to... really take care of other people is by taking care of yourself. Exactly. And this was my like graduation speech at Skywood too. It was into this. You you got to do this for yourself. Whatever gets you in the door to recovery, whether you were forced to go to AA meetings so you remember the twelve steps, where you were forced to do this. Whatever gets you there, you do it for your family, your wife, your kids. Get rid of all of that once you're there, because you're there for thirty, fourteen to thirty days. You're not going anywhere. You're there now. Good. Whatever got you there, leave it. Do it for yourself when you're there. Put your oxygen mask on first. You yeah. do that. Yeah. 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 Metaphorically. Yeah. I guess and literally if you're in a plane. <laughs> literally if you need oxygen, like get it on there. But like it, it makes so much sense at this point in my life because I'm, I'm doing it. I'm practicing it. I'm living it. And it seems like bullshit when it was told to me. <laughs> but all these cliche things and all these things that we say – like work the program, do the steps. It's it sounds cliche because it is. It's the we've boiled it and reduced it down to its bare bones, and it's not fucking cliche. It's penicillin. It works. Yeah, I'm very happy for you. Thank you. I'm happy for me too. Yeah, it's uh the last time we hung out, we were in my basement at another house, different and, basement, and both drunk. <laughs> both drunk and on on yeah it's funny that we're in a yeah again we're in the basement and again with microphones and uh this time we're both sober yeah so cheers cheers <laughs> cheers to that yeah. um sobriety is cool as hell yeah i i would honestly sell it to anyone and you'd probably do a damn good job a lot of experience i would, I would do my best i could yeah i like selling things <laughs> well i i mean thank you I appreciate your your story. Thank and, you for having me. Taking the time. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? All right. You just listened to my interview with Chris Lixie. I got to tell you, I, I hope everything was coherent and great. Me and Chris talked for like two and a half hours and i obviously edited that down um and we went off on a few tangents and obviously when we're talking about some random person that none of you know i i kind of cut some of that out because what's the point of that huh but a lot of shout outs in there and i just think his story is is really great and it's it's always it's always nice to talk to somebody that is self-aware and like newly sober, like under a year 
because they're just your mind is having so many ping pongy revelations and reframing your past and your and your childhood and taking accountability. It's it's beautiful. So I was glad to catch Chris when I did, and I kind of alluded to that in the beginning of the episode in the intro because we were supposed to sit down, God, like a year and a half ago, and I think if we would have sat down prior to Chris getting sober, I don't think it would have been the same conversation um, at all. So I'm really excited that we did it when we did it, and I cannot be more grateful only one episode left this season, which is crazy, and the summer series starts in June, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. I I won't tell you exactly what it's going to be this year, but I'll say it is uh, <laughs> as close to getting my thoughts into your ears as possible. Is that... <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh I just got home from Comic-Con. I'm all fired up. If you want to know more about that, you can, I don't know, follow me on something. I probably talk about it. And that's, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to go take some much needed rest. I am highly overwhelmed lately. Uh, lots going on. So Thank you to Chris. Thank you to all of you listening. If you are looking for more or want to support the show, you can do so for only about a dollar a month at patreon.com slash friend request pod. Please do that. It helps me pay for all these hosting fees and everything. So if you've been listening all these years, years, we're about to wrap season four and you've been like, oh, maybe I'll help. Maybe I won't. Now is the time, guys. Holy crap. We've been doing this for so long. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you guys. I will talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.